House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery, and I am Al Warren. Mr. Mike Brown is back again. Back again, like a bad rash. I keep turning up when you yeah. least expect me. Here yeah. I am. I don't think there's any pills that will fix this. No. <laughs> well, there's probably one pill that would make me go with cyanide. I don't want to take a cyanide pill or anything like that. But uh, No, no, no. Well, and I don't think the pharmacy gives you one anyway. That's no, just, no. Yeah, Canada's not going to do that to you. Well, I mean, what? you know, we do have that legalized uh, uh, dying here now. You know, if you want to take the more dignified way out, you can do it. Well, great. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll just leave that one alone. Yeah, um, right. Well, speaking of that, speaking of history and Canadian history, like I'm sort of, I'm really surprised about this book and about the story. And even doing a little reading about it, I'm totally blown away. I didn't, I think a lot of people are probably a little bit um, naive as how they think of Canada and some of the history and, and, and like what's been going on with the, uh, the um, indigenous um, children being found in graves and stuff like that. I think there's a lot of shock. I think a lot of people are still kind of not really, they can't believe what they hear type thing, right? So uh, this, this story kind of fits in there. And uh, so what we're going to be talking about is uh, a book uh, called Hanged in Medicine Hat, and it's uh, Murders in a Nazi Prison of War Camp, and the disturbing true story of Canada's last mass execution. And the authors are guest, Mr. Nathan Greenfield. So thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Wow, this is a, a it's truly um interesting story and it kind of adds to what i was saying first of all um let's talk about how you found out about this because i hadn't even really heard about any of this stuff before well um in uh i wrote a book on the canadian support of hong kong and they were prisoners of war for three three and a half years and then i wrote a book on canadian evaders escapers um and POWs in Europe in the Second World War, and then I wrote a book on Canadian POWs in the First World War. Somewhere in my research uh, on this, I came across this story and filed it away, uh, and having done the three books on um, POWs uh, overseas, I figured that I should turn my attention to an unknown or little-known story about you know, tens of thousands of uh, German POWs uh, on the Canadian prairies and, in fact, in camps dotted across the country. Yeah, and that's what's kind of shocked me, because was the amount, like, and you're saying that for three years during the Second World War, there was 12,000 Nazis ha held in the camp near Medicine Hat, and, and looking at different articles online, um, the saying I, that, that I've read that um, the Canadian government is responsible for over 34,000 German prisoners of war and in, in 25 separate camps, mm -hmm. and the largest being that of Medicine Hat and another one in Lethbridge, which is for people that in the States that don't know, it's kind of southern Alberta, close to the border, um, south of Calgary, so it's kind of in, in the start of the prairies and you know, not a lot of population there. So uh, the first thing that came to my mind was why was Canada housing 30,000-plus Nazi prisoners of war in Canada, and what's the process involved in that? Because this, we're talking about the, the 40s, 1940s, and if you have that many people that were being captured by the Allies, why are they shipping them all the way to Canada and then across the train into a prairie town, and that many of them? Like, what, what was the process there? Well, the, the group in Medicine Hat uh, the, uh, primarily were from the Africa Corps. So after Rommel was defeated, uh, the British, of whom the, under whom the Canadians served, captured tens of thousands of Germans. Britain could not hold them. Uh, by that point, the Americans were in the war, and they were building the huge bases, uh, and you needed the training grounds, etc., etc. I mean, some three, four million uh, Yanks ended up in, uh, in Britain. So there simply wasn't the room. Uh, nor was there the food. 
uh, for them. Uh, so the, they were shipped out to Australia, to Canada, South Africa, and of course after the Americans were involved, um, after the, uh, mainly the Battle of the Kazarin Pass, uh, the Americans also take prisoners across the, across the sea. The U.S. ended up with uh, some hundred uh, odd thousand uh, German POWs. Um, it was, uh, the, uh, the process was relatively simple. Um, they were herded into camps in various places um, in uh, North Africa. And some were shipped directly through England to the United States, some through South Africa. Not, I was never able to determine whether there was a rhyme or reason for that. Uh, but they ended up uh, in Canada. Uh, the money of the men I wrote about, um, uh, that is to say, men who were ex- the two of the men who were ex- the two men who were executed and some of the men who killed them, arrived on the Queen uh, uh, Queen Elizabeth uh, in New York, uh, and then uh, were uh, marched uh, onto a, a CP train and crossed at Sarnia and onwards across the prairies. Uh, the two camps in Alberta were chosen because they were in Alberta. In this, and that meant that you couldn't escape and getting there. Uh, the um, only reliable transportation at that point was the train, and they had very, the Canadians had good surveillance of the train system uh, near the camps. Uh, during the winter, of course, if you escaped, you'd die uh, because you'd get lost. Uh, and during the summer, you'd simply get lost. Uh, so the, um, and it was just too far away for them to get anywhere. Uh, if they did escape, there were no successful escapes from the camps, those two camps. There were from other camps in New Brunswick and elsewhere. Um, the, uh, but from those two camps, there were no successful escapes, and they couldn't have gotten anywhere. Now, the cabin documents state that clearly, that those pla- they're chosen because there is no way to get out. What was the camp like? Okay, so when you describe the camp, how, how would you um, tell people um, how these prisoners lived? Like, what was it like anything we've seen or... I can say they lived very well. Most of them put on 22 pounds wow. uh, on average. Uh, the camps had hot showers at a time when, and indoor toilets at a time when hot showers were not common on the prairies. Uh, the uh, camps were, uh, there were any number of activities from sports to th- theater to um, uh, uh, education activities uh, in the camps. Uh, the um, uh, prisoners were allowed an unlimited amount of mail. The tons of mail uh, uh, came in and went out. And uh, I know your American viewer, your listeners won't um, understand this, uh, I, the way I say it, but I'll explain in a second. Uh, they could, prisoners were allowed to order from a very special Eaton's mail order cat- catalog to send stuff back to their families in Germany. Wow. Uh, and, uh, my, our American listeners think the Sears Roebuck ca- um, uh, catalog. Yeah. Yeah. Eaton's was a little, uh, I think it was a little higher end, wasn't it? Um, not so much its catalog at the time. Right. Yeah. The, so they, so you, the, we have records of, uh, of German POWs in the camps ordering stockings to be sent to their go- girlfriends, wives, or, or wives and girlfriends, or whom, whom I don't know. Uh, and they, the, all the shipping went through neutral Turkey or neutral Sweden. Uh, there was special chocolate that Eaton's made to send back to, for the men to send back that wouldn't melt. Um, so they, they lived rather well. That's, that's really interesting to me. I just covered the uh, internment of Japanese-Canadians uh, on my show, Dark Poutine, and um, the Japanese Canadians weren't treated so well. It's really fascinating, and these these were Canadian citizens who were treated poorly. It's it's strange that uh, German POWs, people who we were at war with, were treated so well. Well, there was a good reason for it. Besides, Canada wanted to be punctilious in its uh, uh, following of Geneva. And that is the hope that the Germans would then treat their, their POWs, that is to say, our boys, uh, well. Uh, so it was a, a bit of a, you know, not quite tit for tat, because that's usually negative, but, you know, in, in that sense, that, uh, they were treated well, uh, and also that they would send home, uh, uh, in their letters home, they would praise their treatment. And as 1942 gave way to 43 and into 44, the uh, food situation in Germany uh, deteriorated greatly. Now, there was never mass starvation, but there were shortages, and things like chocolate and milk were not available. And you'd get, you know, this letter from your um, husband, boyfriend, son, uh, cousin, 
saying, well, you know, we just had Christmas dinner and, you know, I had a whole turkey and, you know, five pints of milk or something like that, as well as beer. They could buy beer. Um, so it, uh, so there was a bit of pee, uh, 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 propaganda involved also in why they were treated so well. Right. Now, now the center, uh, a big part of the story is really focused on how the camp ran um, from the inside. Right. Like, so, so maybe explain that because, okay, so you've got a prison camp and people are thinking Hogan's Heroes that are. And they're not wrong. Hogan's Heroes actually gets a lot of things right. People laugh at me when I say that. But if you think of it, the Colonel Clink never issues an order to a POW. He tells Sergeant Schultz, who tells Colonel Hogan, who then issues the order. Mm-hmm. Uh, Colonel Hogan is, would be what the Germans call the man of confidence. Uh, that is to say the spokesperson for the camp. Uh, and, uh, that he was in command of all of the men in the, all of the allied, um, uh, men in the camp. Now, where Co- Hogan's Heroes gets wrong is that the, uh, the, the, their bunk is, uh, is multinational, and that was almost never true. But that's, that you have to do that for, uh, you know, traumatic purposes. Um, but, and when someone breaks the rules, gets caught doing something, they have to go to Dakula! as uh, Sergeant right. Schultz would say, <laughs> and that's how it happened. That's what happened. You got sent to the Kula. It wasn't, the term was correct uh, for what was called a strafe, which is punishment. And, you know, you could be in it for, you know, three days for, let's say, not, not saluting uh, Colonel Klink, or you could be in it for a week if you were caught with uh, the wrong kind of pen, or you could be in it for a month if you were caught escaping. And that was all, so that in an odd way, uh, Hogan's Heroes gets those important details right. The other thing it gets right is that the men, and I, I think I use the phrase in this book and another, POWs were off the chessboard. That is to say they were no longer on the battlefield. But they were still men at war. And both German and British, and hence the Canadian, military code, uh, enjoined the POWs, their men who become POWs, who, who might become POWs, to try to escape, if at all possible. So again, Hogan's heroes, they're constantly escaping through that uh, tree trunk. Uh, <laughs> right. but, so it's a, it also gets that right, that the aim, you wanted to tie up German resources. After the Great Escape, there were tens of thousands of German soldiers who were mobilized who were not on the front. So you wanted, and you tied up resources because it meant you had to have, in the case of the Canadians, we call them scouts in our camp, camps, and they were the men who went looking for uh, tunnels, for contraband like knives or maps or things like that. So if you were just guarding the fence, let's say, you could probably have half the um, uh, uh, company that you needed to do the camp if you're going to be digging, looking for tunnels and going through stuff, just because of man, you know, manpower is manpower. You can't be up on the, uh, uh, in the tower and also searching a, a, a hut. When you, when you get to the, to, to the crux of it, in a way, they're kind of running their own people. They're running their own show. Yes. Within the wire, and that, the term is important, uh, in the Canadian camps, they had defenses and maybe there was about a 10 foot verge and then a wire, basically an ankle length, and if you touched, if you stepped over the wire, you could be shot. Mm-hmm. Except if you were going to look for, going to pick up a soccer ball, every POW had a white flag to wave while he was going to get a soccer ball. But within the wire, the Germans, or as called, you know, Hogan's heroes, you know, Hogan, uh, the Germans more or less ran everything. Discipline was up to the, what was, uh, meted out by the Germans. They decided where the mail would be distributed, which was gave them tremendous psychological power over the other POWs um, because they could cut off the mail delivery to um, this or that uh, uh, German POW for whatever reason uh, they wanted, in fact. Um, so they, uh, they ran the show. They did the cooking. Several of the cooks um, at Incamp 132 were cooks before the war, and in fact, their cooking was better than the, the cooking for the, um, the guards, and one particular guard uh, rem- uh, uh, wrote a memoir, and he talks about how the dinner of 1940, I think it was 1942, it could be 43, uh, the best Christmas dinner he ever had was cooked by the Germans. So they legally ran the show within the wire, 
that so that's you know the um uh and geneva recognizes that so uh, how how were um the people living in the towns close by to any of these camps and were they were they happy that they had the camps close to them and also wouldn't it be a little bit disturbing to them that maybe that these um nazis and prisoners of war were probably living as good and maybe in some cases better than them we don't have anything about their thoughts about how the men were living in the camp there is one document i found where the um uh of Ottawa is a little concerned about the amount of chocolate that is going to um, uh, Medicine Hat, and the, it was asked to keep the amount quiet because there was a chocolate shortage uh, at that point in the rest of Canada. Um, so that's uh, in terms of how they thought about it, um, it was, they were very happy the camp was in Medicine Hat. It brought a lot of jobs. Medicine Hat had suffered terribly during the Depression. Uh, and it, uh, it led to a new waterworks being built, a new generator being built. Uh, a um, so that the um, they uh, provided you know, jobs. Um, the there was not all that much interaction between uh, the um, the Hatters, as they're called, and the, uh, the the POWs. Although the Hatters did see them regularly on walks, they would go on parole walks in town, and that was true in Germany too. Uh, parole being your promise not to escape. Um, and um, the people around Medicine Hat were quite used to having German POWs, all of whom were not Nazis, I guess I should say, uh, quite used to having uh, German POWs around because they worked in the fields and in the forests of Alberta and the rest of Canada. Um, in fact, just as a, a sidebar, at the end of the war, uh, in a camp, not, not Medicine Hat, but another camp on the prairies, uh, the, it was you know, first captured, first sent home. And so the war is over. They're sending home those who've been the in the camp the longest, and they put up the list on, a, you know, saying next Tuesday these 200 men will be being you know, repatriated to Germany. And the man of confidence looks at the list, goes to the commandant, and says, "You cannot send him, 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 and him. Uh, why can't I? They are married and have children. They married and had children on the farms." Oh. Do you want to be the assistant deputy minister who goes to the deputy minister <laughs> to say, you know, uh, uh, sir, we have a problem? Yeah. So uh, the so there was not an awful lot of there, there was not really uh, that kind of animosity you might expect. Uh, the book opens with a uh, um, a uh, story of Joyce Risa, whom I interviewed. She's since passed on, uh, and uh, she uh, and the Glee Club uh, performed in the uh, camp in the, for Christmas of 1942. So the girls' glee club from the Medicine Hat School went into the camp and uh, did a concert. Her mother was the conductor uh, of the um, glee club, and um, they, were, they were there, and, of course, you know, everybody cried when they sang White Christmas, which was the hit song of that. Now that we've kind of got a setting of what, what this camp was like and where it was and what was going on, uh, how did the story that you are titled about the hanging hanged in medicine hat um come about like what what was the basic crime that happened well there were two in uh, 1943 uh private august Plazet was murdered and in 1944 uh uh carl uh, lehman who was a translator for the luftwaffe in north africa both of them were africa Corps, uh was executed uh i use the term the term slightly differently uh, Plazic's murder was not premeditated. Uh, what had happened was the uh, German uh, leadership had heard that there were perhaps a, going to be an attempt by former uh, French foreign legionnaires who had uh, then become members of the Wehrmacht and were sent into the Africa Corps to, uh, against the camp leadership, which was becoming increasingly Nazified. There wasn't going to be. But they were going, they, they investigated several former legionnaires, and it got out that they were, some were being investigated in this particular hut, and there was basically a riot. Uh, and um, Private uh, Schultz, uh, he ran, got over the wire, uh, and was protected by the Canadians. But then there was uh, the, this angry mob which descended upon the... Um, West Recre the, the hut where this was t they were taking place. They seized Plazic. Uh, he was hung. They were the men who did it were guilty of murder, no doubt. Um, but it was not a premeditated. That's why I didn't use the word executed. 
I'm drawing, drawing a you know slight legal distinction between the two. Um, and um, in the case of uh, Lehman, uh, the they were going to be moving uh, several thousand members of the um, uh, camp in 1944 to uh, to Nice, Ontario, uh, to make room for POWs captured in Normandy. And the they were they were sending the most Nazified. There was a there was a schema they had for determining uh, level of Nazification uh, with not being Nazified white and the most being Nazified being black. So they were sending the camp leadership and their supporters out of the camp to Nice, Ontario, which was even more uh, isolated than uh, uh, Medicine Hat. The night before, uh, the night, well, they were going to be leaving at 4 a.m. Uh, that night, uh, Carl Lehman was called to uh, the West Creation Hut, where he was going to uh, sign, he was, he was a teacher also in camp, sign uh, diplomas. And he was killed there. He was uh, by uh, four, five uh, POWs. Uh, and his body was found the next day. And then the investigate. So they've been investigating the Plasic murder for a year before Lehman was murdered. And then they have the, the, some, the, the investigations, you know, become concurrent at, at a certain point. The RCMP and military intelligence hit a stone wall time after time. Things are looking pretty good. I have the, I have all the documents of the investigations, and they're saying, we think we're going to break this case, you know, in the next week or so, and um, then everything dries up. And finally, after the end of the war in 1945, an anonymous letter is left on a typewriter in Nice, Ontario, detailing, well, not so, not so much detailing, but sketching out who did what, and that breaks the case because that gives the RCMP the firepower to start and start calling many and saying, we know all of this, what else can you tell us? And then people start talking. And that led, then led to the, uh, the indictments, uh, um, and uh, then finally the trials in 1946. These were just outright murders. Um, but they were sort of trying to run their own camp from inside. So, right. so, most right. of the men in the camp sort of believed in the justice that they admit that, you know, they, 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 they murdered these people, I would guess. Yes. I mean, there, there are, I, again, in the testimony we have, you know, did, you know, one, one a POW said, well, did you know who did it? He says, yeah, but I'm not going to tell you. I'm a good German. Mm -hmm. So if there were a couple of brave souls who came forward uh, and one guy um, left a, 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 um, a, um, a memoir lying around and was picked up by the RCMP and it gave more information. So they were able to break the, um, the, the code of silence, so to speak. Uh, and the, um, that led again to the, the first trial was for the killers of Plazic. That led to uh, one execution, uh, one long-term imprisonment and one exoneration. And then the trials for Lehman. Um, again, the, the killing of Plazic, uh, is, um, he, he was suspect of having been involved. There was never any proof that involved in a subversion of the camp, never any proof, and it really was a mob action. In fact, in the trial, the, um, the Crown Attorney says, I'm going to try this case as if we're trialing it, trying it under the Riot Act, although they didn't, uh, because that would, would allow guilt by, um, uh, not associate, association is the wrong word, but guilt by you were also present at the time this took place. Um, in the Lehman's case, it was a much, much more, um, there had been concerns about him. He, by the way, ha, uh, the records show that he, in fact, was a traitor. So in that sense, they were right. Uh, he was helping, uh, the, um, giving information to the Canadian, uh, authorities. Um, they did not have any proof of that, but, um, they suspected it. Um, nor did they know that during, but before the war, he had been a communist, uh, or at least a very active socialist. Uh, uh, so um, he was he was one who would be fingered relatively easily. So, so basically, these in camp um, prisoners had decided to kill these two people mainly because they considered them to be traitors or. Against yes. the German way. Now, within the camp itself, you talk about the um, 
kind of like the hierarchy or, or how it ran. So you sort of suggest that there's even its own shadow Nazi government. It kind of maybe talk about what you mean there. Well, it wasn't shadow. It was quite quite, quite there. I mean, the, the man of confidence was elected by the, the, the various block leaders who were elected by the men in, in, the, in, in the huts. Block is the, the other word for hut. Uh, and uh, so there, it was quite clear who the camp leadership was. Uh, it became more and more Nazified, especially after the bomb plot uh, in 1944. Uh, and the um, orders were issued by the ranking uh, German uh, prisoner in Canada, General, Lieutenant General Schmidt, who was not at Medicine Hat. He was at uh, um, Bowmanville in Ontario. Uh, but he was the ranking, and he issued orders which were carried uh, to Medicine Hat uh, to uh, you know, be good Nazis. And then after the bomb plot, they had, a, they had a radio, a secret radio, and they heard Hitler's orders to execute anyone who was a traitor. And the traitor they had in in their sights was uh, uh, Karl Lehman, and so uh, he was he, he was duly executed by the uh, camp leadership. So this is really complex uh, legally, uh, diplomatically, uh, in regard to the Geneva Convention. Holy smokes! How do you how does how does this get prosecuted and defended? Well. Oddly, there's a problem there, and that's why the, the, story, the subtitle is The Disturbing a True Story. It was prosecuted in civilian court, which it should not have been. Both uh, Geneva and, for that matter, the uh, applicable Canadian law, the War Measures Act, uh, stipulate that serious trials of uh, POWs, and things were not for theft, let's say, uh, must be in military court. Um, this, and the, 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 I have not, I was never able to find the doc, cabinet document to explain why it was in civilian court. I did find several cabinet documents saying that it will be in civilian court, uh, because the RCMP was the lead investigator. But that's not, that, that's really not, from our point of view today, legally enough to explain it. It's more, that's more the mechanical, uh, uh, question. So it's in civilian court. Uh, which means that um, although the judge was a World War I veteran, uh, not all of the men, and they were only men at that point, six, a six-person jury, because in Alberta that was allowed because of small population, um, the, uh, not all of them had a military background. So understanding even the military code was not necessarily the strong point of the uh, juries. Uh, and then, of course, you have the com- added complexity of understanding the relationship between the military code and the Geneva Convention. So when you um, think about it in, in one way, I could see why um, Canadian military would want those people prosecuted and executed because they were killing their spies. It was, it, and, but on the other hand, um, why couldn't the camp administer its own punishment? Um, well, by 1946, of course, uh, killing their own spies would have no impact because the war is long over. Right. So if you want to go down that road, they should have actually just released them. Um, the issue came down, and in the camp, the camp isn't allowed to discipline beyond a certain uh, level of discipline. For example, trying to escape 30 days in isolation or things like that. Um, so the, the, you, so the, we, have a, we, have the, we have killings so it was judged to come under the, well, the Metropolitan, that is the Canadian Criminal Code, uh, and hence must be prosecuted. Um, the defense at, the, especially the Lehman trial, the argument was made at the, uh, uh, at the Plaza trial, but the Lehman trials was made much, much more and much more detail, is that the uh, POWs were following orders. Now, Nuremberg was going on at the same time. And Nuremberg had already rejected the I was just following orders um, uh, defense. But that is nowhere stated uh, in the trials that Nuremberg had rejected it. Um, nor, for that matter, was Nuremberg as 
clue on that as mythology tells us. So it wasn't uh, it wasn't uh, established as um, precedent at the time. Well, let's say it was the precedent was forming, but the precedent was fudgy at certain uh, areas. So, for example, Carl Dunnitz was able to use the "I was just following orders" defense, and it was accepted. Uh, others, it was not accepted. Uh, so, as I say, mythology has it that you know, Nuremberg established that as a hard and fast rule. That is not true. It's only later that it becomes a hard and fast, uh, 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 not, not even sure it's hard and fast rule now, but it's uh, a hard and fast uh, uh, urban legend, if I can put it that way. So the trial did not, uh, never refers to that, and, but the issue of following orders comes down to the question of the wire. If the uh, territory within the wire is governed by German officers, then it's governed by German officers. Now, that brings us to another point that's raised in the book, dealing with homosexuality. And I'm not the slightest bit interested in men's sex lives. The importance of homosexuality in the trials is it was used by both the the defense and the prosecution to to, uh, try to throw mud at various... um, uh, witnesses, but that the German, the Canadian authorities accepted, that is, they, they allowed the German military authorities to take uh, a, um, discipline men for homosexual offenses which were against the German military code as well as the Canadian military code, not to mention Canadian civil, uh, the civilian code, you know, Canadian criminal code. Um, the by allowing that, and those were called degradation ceremonies, they were awful. Men were marched in front of, the, you know, hundreds of, or thousands of men. Their epaulets were torn off. Their, uh, their, the arms of, arms of their um, uh, tunics were ripped off. And then in many cases, they were basically left there to be beaten uh, to a pulp by the uh, symboled um, uh, German soldiers. Um, by allowing that to take place many times, uh, the uh, Canadian authorities, I argue, recognized the perseverance of German military law once you entered, once you went over the wire. They, they, they did this. Uh, so the argument put forward that they were following the orders le- that were legal orders uh, of Adolf Hitler in the sense that, you know, the, uh, the Third Reich's regime was the legal government of Germany, recognized by England, France, Canada, the United States, Soviet Russia, prior to the war. Um, there were not, and no country ever withdrew its recognition of the legal status of the Hitlerian government. Um, so that the, the men were issued... I would argue, I mean, it's an abhorrent order, but it it has all the uh, hallmarks of a legal order. Mm. Now, now these guys. So, if you were um, caught in a homosexual act, and they decided they were going to prosecute you, so to speak, within the Nazi camp. Um, so, when they take you and, and rip off your awards and different things, and and they beat you, let's say, um, even to death. Now, was anything ever um, administered toward the people that, that gave these prisons, prisoners the, well, the beating? In, in, uh, at, in, in the records I've seen, no one was ever beaten to death. Some were very badly beaten. Yeah, but uh, uh, so, so if, 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 if so they say they caught you, you were doing something, they thought it was bad, so they took you and stripped you and they beat you up and threw you and right. the thing. Now, for the people that did that to that prisoner that was homosexual, did any did were they ever punished for doing that? Usually not. There is one case, however, where uh, soldiers were uh, punished, and in fact they were convicted in a civilian court in a country that had outlawed uh, homosexuality, and its military outlawed homosexuality. But these, I think it's four or five men, were convicted and served as bait in, in jail. It, it, it's very odd. It's a very odd uh, thing to read that these, these men were, you know, tried and convicted for beating up homosexuals when, in fact, the, this was something that was 
you know, almost perfectly legal in Canada at the time. So it sounds like there might be a lot of um, feelings or emotions or some sort of political motivation between the people that were some of them getting prosecuted, some of them not. It might have been who they were and who their friends or enemies were. Uh, could have been. Uh, we don't know why these particular men were prosecuted. Um, we do know they were. So um, my guess is that what happened is a, um, uh, a camp guard came across, you know, the, you know, the bloodied uh, uh, private or corporal or whomever he was, uh, asked what happened, he was told, and they rounded the men up, and they said, yeah, we beat him up. He was af after the um, uh, degradation ceremony. I mean, it, it, I don't think, I wouldn't go looking for anything terribly complex because it, there's nothing in the records to indicate complexity. Right. And I would say that the, probably the majority of the people thought that was a, an illegal and a bad thing. You know, these, the, the homosexual act itself was considered quite bad back in that time. So, so in, in, in the average mind, they would have thought, oh, well, he deserved it or whatever. Well, yes, exactly. And that's what, it, uh, so in the, in the trials, that's why homosexuality becomes important, uh, for two, as I said, for two reasons. One is because it, both the prosecution and the defense use it to, uh, throw, throw uh, mud at various witnesses. And then because for the defense, it's also a question of whether or not, uh, German law is followed within the wire. And it led to, uh, Judge Housen's, uh, line, which is my favorite one in the book, uh, from the judge, I am of the opinion that the medicine hat, the POW camp in medicine hat is in Canada because there had been a motion for him to rule that it was not part of Canada, uh, which then went up to appeal and more or less the same thing was said. In fact, it went up to the governor general uh, because of the, uh, they were uh, death sentences and the governor general uh, uh, refused to use his prerogative. Uh, so it, it was one of the defenses all the way up. Wow. Now, do you, do you think, in your own opinion, that um, if it would have been tried, the, both these crimes, in a military court, things would have been different? Um, I think there might have been a lot of, there could have been differences in uh, the case of um, Plasic, uh, the uh and in the case of Lehman, uh, the issue of what following orders means under certain circumstances is something that could really only be understood uh, when you understand the military code, which is never really, I mean, it was presented in court, but it was never fully explained. Uh, that's not the place for it. Uh, I should add that in South, uh, South Africa, there was a similar situation, uh, which the Canadian government was well aware of because the two men who were accused of killing uh, someone uh, were, had been transferred to Canada, and South Africa investigators had to come to Canada to interview them. They were then sent back to South Africa, stood trial, and it also was oddly civilian court. I don't know, don't know why, but the and it was a death sentence that had been ruled by the jury, but the judge overruled and said that men cannot be held completely responsible for their actions in the artificial world of a prison camp. So that the um, so and the Canadian government knew that and allowed the execution to go forward. Similar cases in the United States were tried in military court. Some led to conviction, some did not. But uh, the um, it, uh, it I've been asked what would happen today, and the their trials probably would have been uh, declared a mistrial on day one in many cases. Um, but the uh, I don't think today you would get you could well you could not enter the the uh, evidence, the, uh, you could not use the homosexual uh, evidence as a way of discrediting witnesses. You would only be allowed to use it as a way of showing the uh, uh, perseverance of uh, German military law. So it would have a very different uh, uh, function in a courtroom today. I mean, at one point, the Crown Prosecutor says, let us take a step deeper into the Maya when talking about uh, uh, homosexuality in the camp. I mean, a phrase like that would lead to a mistrial. <laughs> yeah. As it should. Uh, yeah. So, well, do, do, do you think that if we actually had a prisoner of war camp today, like things were going on right now, some war, and we had that now, do you think that in these days um, we would actually let them administer their own punishments? 
You wouldn't have any choice. Uh, the Geneva Convention uh, demands it. Oh, so that would still go on today. Like there, there would be. Well, for, for example, uh, you know, Ukraine is 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 picking is getting hundreds of, if not thousands, per day Russian POWs. At some point, there's going to be a problem housing them. Right. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I, um, because I've done so much work in POWs, I've been asked, well, you know, what's, what, what do you think? And I said, well, you know, we're a big country. I just drove to Kamloops. My wife and I just drove, drove to Kamloops to, to visit our son and daughter-in-law and my, uh, 10-month-old stepson. And we drove back to the States. It's a big country if you, uh, you know, out there. Uh, Nye's Ontario is still there. I saw the sign for it. Um, so, you know, it's, it's not, this is, you know, spinning out uh, a web. But, you know, let's assume they asked, you know, could we hold these men? And let's assume we said yes. Well, we would immediately be under the rules of the Geneva Convention. Well, we'll put them in Winnipeg. <laughs> <laughs> That's only because of the weather. <laughs> well, you, yeah. it'd be tough to escape, right? You know, in winter you would, you would freeze. But they would really yeah, well, want to. Well, yeah. <laughs> there were lots of places in this country you couldn't escape from, even in the summer. Yeah. <laughs> so, so remote. Yeah. But, um, no, we would immediately fall under the rules of the Geneva Convention, which has, it has, uh, which has changed. It's we're now the Geneva Convention of 1949, not 1929. But it is essentially the same, uh, for the question of POWs. Uh, so. What I think would be very different uh, would be the um, how uh, prisoners of war uh, that there, there would be much more effort to structure um, their days so that you don't have you know masses of men you know standing around doing nothing, which is bad for them and bad for camp discipline. Right, right. There would be more activity, more work or something. Yeah, there would be more activities. As I said, we we did have educational activities. There were thousands of um, German POWs who went home with university degrees. Uh, the um, And uh, I, in fact, when I writing my first book on the Battle of St. Lawrence uh, at Queen's University, I actually found a, I should have made a copy of it, I didn't, uh, of a uh, uh, SS officer crossing... Um, the uh, uh, at graduation in full uniform to get his diploma. Wow! <laughs> wow! Yeah, I mean, full. I mean, he was an SS officer, and he was entitled to get his diploma in public. Uh, so, uh, and um, as I said, there were thousands. You know, there's lots of sports activities. There was uh, movies, etc., etc. Uh, to to, to for, for for the because POWs are not criminals. I'm writing about criminals. POWs are prisoners because they represent the country. It's a very important difference, and they're also different than regular prisoners because they do not know when their sentence will end. Yeah, it's quite a different concept here. They haven't been convicted of any crime. No, they're not, and they're not guilty of any crime, ipso facto. I mean, they are representatives representatives of the government at, with which you are at war, um, but they are not criminals. Uh, unless they do something that is illegal, they are not criminals, which is makes them a very different, um, uh, a very different kettle of fish, as it were. Now, so um, when you went through the research and, and put together the book, um, were there things that sort of surpri- surprised you, even though you're sort of into the history and, and been studying it anyway? Was there something that came up that you weren't expecting? Um. Uh, in the investigation, I was I was a little surprised at how naive the RCMP could be about some of the people. There was a, uh, the uh, the ranking German. Uh, there's only one officer in the camp, Doctor Nolt, who's a captain, uh, and um, he clearly was involved in all sorts of shenanigans and was uh, was clearly involved in disciplining. Uh, 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 POWs that he should not have been because he was a doctor and the Hippocratic Oath, etc. And the RCMP uh, seemed to be bamboozled by him uh, from the very beginning. It was only later on that they realized that they'd been taken for a ride. Um, in the trials, uh, I had there was great fun in the trials because you would uh, there was at one point the 
so with Plazik is hit as he's coming into being pulled to the hut where he's hit, the West Recreation Hall where he's killed, he is hit with a, uh, a, um, either a piece of earth or a piece of clay, a heavy piece of earth or a heavy piece of clay. And the two words in German are very close, uh, uh, Boden and Baden, I think. Uh, and the, there were, the trial transcripts, for those of you who've never seen them, are on long legal document pages. So they're very long. There's lots of text. There were six or seven pages of trying to determine the correct translation of this clod of earth. And finally, the judge uh, said, I think we understand that earth is, earth is clay and clay is earth, at least in this courtroom. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then uh, the, um, there were moments of, 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 of levity. Uh, a number of POWs refused to kiss the Bible because they believed in the sword. One so- tried to get around it by kissing his thumb, holding it and kissing his thumb. The judge blew his top and started screaming, there will be no thumb kissing in my court. <laughs> um, so, you know, there, there are those sorts of moments uh, that, um, uh, and translations of, uh, uh, I demanded the rope or I asked for the rope and what that distinction might mean um, in, uh, in, in, a court, in a court of law. Right, right. Um, so it's... Um, so those, though I guess I wasn't expecting to find some moments of levity in, 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 in the courtroom. Um, nor was I expecting to find that at the end of the story, uh, there was a, there were a couple of, uh, cabinet minutes that the Louis Saint Laurent, who was Minister of Justice, uh, appears to have, for, uh, supported clemency. That is to say, Governor General commuting sentence. But he leaves office and James Isley is appointed because he sent, uh, he's, no, he, sorry, doesn't leave office yet. He goes down to, um, Lake Success, New York to be at the founding of the United Nations. And he is replaced by James Isley, who a short while later replaces him. And in one, uh, memo document, it, it suggests that Saint Laurent was averse to the executions. Of course, it says that Isley is not averse to the executions. So if you're going to specify that you are not averse and you are the acting, then it implies that there is an averse that you're not following. So I suggest uh, in the conclusion of the book that the change of justice minister may have had a role to play in the executions. Um, how how did the country um, react to the whole thing, the trial and the executions? Did they did they take it to heart, or were they happy? Like, what do you know? What the response was? Page six. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nineteen forty by December nineteen forty six. I think it may have been page eight. Um, I think the first execution probably did make the front pages of some papers, um, but usually short. Um, again, this was during the time of Nuremberg, so uh, there was, um, you know, they, they, there was a sort of, you know, I would assume by most people a sort of me- a blending of the two uh, that went on in terms of uh, Nazis on the trial, going through uh, Nazis who have been tried and convicted, or um, and the. Um, Early on, the early trials do make the front pages, but very quickly we're on page three and page five uh, of the um, because people went on, you know, to do much, a much, you know, we're, we're sick of the wars. It's forty six. Um, at one point in the book, I actually show that I think it's one of the convictions is is on page four or five of the um, medicine hat paper, right next to an ad for. Uh, Laundry soap. <laughs> uh, so you're, you know, you're beginning. It's, it, it's, it's really no law. It's not an issue uh, in the public mind, right? Right. Uh, which is why it's not particularly well known, I suppose. Yeah. Even though it is, um, it, it is. Uh, I guess you know the executions in 1946. I, I just, as I'm thinking about it now, was actually the last act of the Canadians in the Second World War. 
Now, one other thing I should add is that in June of 1945, uh, not June, uh, uh, May of 1945, two days before the German surrender, the two Germans uh, defect to the Canadian lines the, in Holland. So the Canadians have them. Mm-hmm. The war is over two days later. The Germans commander on the other side, because it took a while to, of course, take control of everything. So the Germans still were controlling uh, the water and electricity of this, you know, over the river in Holland, whichever where this was, till the, till the Canadians could move in in force. Came to the Canadians and said, you have these guys. They are, de- they are, you know, they have defected. They are traitors. We want to execute them in a drumhead court. Not only did we hand them over, but we gave them the guns to execute them. So in 19, you know, after the extinguishment of the Nazi state, it had ceased to exist. The Canadian army, all the way up to, you know, the commander of the Canadians in Holland, um, said that it was okay to hand these guys over and for them to be executed under the laws, military law of a country, or at least a regime, that had ceased to exist. By the same logic, in 1944, when that country has, you know, has, you know, another year and a half of existence, its laws should have been recognized. Well, this is a fascinating story, fascinating book, and we recommend it totally. Um, now, uh, of course, we're going to have it up on our website. People can find it with one click. Uh, the book is called Hanged in Medicine Hat, Murders in a Nazi Prison of War Camp, and the disturbing true story of Canada's last mass execution. Our guest is the author, Nathan Greenfield, thank you for being here. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Something weird, media. I'll be back.